Good evening to each and every one that's assembled here tonight. It's another great opportunity we have been given to assemble as thy people and to worship in spirit and in truth. Tonight, as we turn our attention to our lesson, it's going to be a continuation of a series of lessons that we have started and looked at on evangelism. And tonight we are going to be, and back to the Bible, lesson two. It was read for us from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, a moment ago, that that verse applies to all of us, not just the preacher, not just the elders, but to the church members. And for our slide of introduction tonight, we're going to get ourselves familiar, as we did with lesson one, with the material in lesson two. As you recall, lesson one was the authority of Christ, the truth, uh, the Word of God, the law that we are under today, and that being the New Testament, the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And lesson two focuses on the church. And you may recall that these series of lessons are not a typical sermon. These sermons are designed for all of us to be engaged and to familiarize ourselves with the material so that we ourselves can have Bible studies with those around us that are lost. And if there be anyone tonight that did not get a copy of Lesson 2, could you raise your hand and we've got some of those that will be distributed. Looks like everybody got a copy. All right. So as we can look at the material um, and keep in mind of Lesson 2 and keep in mind of Back to the Bible, the Back to the Bible again, is patterned after an inspired pattern of Acts chapter 8, 4, 5, and 12. And remember, the material that we are going to be using and looking at was material that was uh, delivered to us here about two years ago, a little over two years ago now, my, by Brother Rob Whitaker. Brother Bob Whitaker, uh, Rob Whitaker, I'm, uh, excuse me, is now at the uh, Jacksonville Church of Christ and started a school of evangelism there and continues to do this work at congregations. But back to the Bible lesson two, details the organization of the church, the worship of the church, and the name of the church. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. But before we begin... I thought it wise to remind ourselves of some trends, troubling ones at that. We looked at this in a series of a couple of lessons ago, but we'll be reminded of some things tonight. And I'm going to use a pointer here to help us out with some things. In the year 1906, you notice the population of America and the members of the Churches of Christ, and that was a ratio of 1 to 535. And we all can agree that that's not great. But things get better. As we continue to 1946, 1953, that ratio gets better. But the key element of this whole chart is the years 1967 to 1973. There was over 2 million church members of the Church of Christ of a ratio of 1 to 84. America, it could be said, was coming to the height of its glory because the church was great. And you may notice during that time frame, the aftermath of World War II, during the Vietnam War, civil rights and the feminist movement, the church was great and the church was growing. 
And this country was being blessed in ways unlike any other. Beginning in 1980, though, we start to see a decline. Something happened between here, 1973 to 1980, in those years where evangelism was on the decline. And dear friends, it has been on the decline ever since. Each and every decade, we have lost church members each and every year. The church is hemorrhaging, and the church is losing its ability to evangelize. You may notice in the year 2000, we dropped to one, the ratio of one to 222, being one out of every 222 people being a Christian, a member of the church. In 2015, that went up to one to 271. And when the year, in the year 2017, that raised to one to 289. So those numbers are not good. Some may challenge those numbers early on. Some preachers have, even though those throughout the brotherhood, by making claims that everything is fine, we can look at polishing the pulpit and other events that take place with the numbers, but there's a problem with that. That's an internal growth, not an external growth. We are doing nothing for those that are lost. And you may notice by the numbers for congregations, when we look at this, starting in the year 2000, for congregations, there were 13,155 congregations of the Lord's people. In 2009, that dropped to 12,629. In 2015, it dropped to 12,300. In the year 2018, that dropped to 11,965. Some may say, and they already have, to not to get alarmed that we don't need a church every mile. We're not in the olden days anymore. We're just combining rural congregations to bigger ones and coming together. But friends, those buildings need to be full too. In rural areas and even urban areas. We should hope they, could, they would be full. And this is not a consolidation. This is a loss. And I want to impress upon you the number that's on this next slide, number 50. If these trends continue and the church continues not to use, utilize strategies to evangelize, and if the Lord allows time to stand for that long, in 50 years there will not be a church of Christ in America. Or it will be so small that one may have to drive for hours before a sound, faithful congregation is found. Friends, I want you to remember that number as we continue this series of lessons, as we look upon the next generation. Right now, we are the generation that's a member of the church, and if we don't get busy in 50 years, we won't be here. We may have to be calling to our brethren in India or Africa or some other place to come back to America because the church will be gone. Friends, we cannot let that happen. We have to get busy and do Bible studies with those that are lost around us to proclaim the truth in every way. And as I've said in the other lessons, and I'll 
make note of it once again. If I would ask you to raise your hand, if you knew of someone in your life that was lost, I know every hand in this auditorium would be raised. Keep that person in mind as we continue our series of lessons. And we're going to, as we've noticed before, back to the Bible is our tool for evangelism. It is our tool. It is a successful tool. It's a scriptural tool. Again, with a 90 to a 92% conversion rate by the end of Lesson 3. So as we continue, let's start. We'll, we'll continue. We'll go through the material. Keeping in mind Lesson 1, we have went through Lesson 1. We've learned all authority in Scripture. That's, of course, from Jesus. We've learned what the truth is. And now that we have that fund fundamental principle, we're ready to begin about the church. The prospect is re ready to begin learning about the church. So keep those individuals in mind as we go through this. Put yourself as the teacher and pretend you're, you're teaching them. You are making your teacher's edition tonight with Back to the Bible, of course, with Lesson 2. You may want to add some notes as we go along. But for our first scripture, it comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus speaking, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. And our question reads, Who built the church? And of course, that's Jesus. You as the teacher and the prospect, of course, will fill that answer in. To whom does the church belong? Taken from this passage, and of course, again, that's Jesus. Next question is, is rather important as we begin uh, lesson two. Did Jesus build churches plural or the church singular? And that, of course, the language of the original, as Jesus spoke, it would be in the singular. He promised to build one church. And that will take us to our next passage. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And our question reads, Is Jesus head over all things to the church? And of course that would be yes. In verse 23, the church is also called his... Of course, that would be his body. And our next passage of Scripture. There is one body, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called, and one hope of your calling. Three questions come from this short passage. Is there only one hope? Of course, yes. Is there only one Holy Spirit? Yes. Is there only one body, the church? That's yes. And I've got a chart here we're going to look at. This is taken, these two charts, charts in fact, are taken from the Personal Evangelism Workbook that Brother Rob has 
has created. And what we notice here is a, a figure. This is patterned after Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 22 and 23. We have a two-headed figure that represents a monster and a one-headed figure with two bodies that represents a double-headed monster. The scenario in the teaching to help the prospect through this is that those that put two heads on the body and one head or have one head and two bodies have made a monster out of religion. It cannot conform to the biblical pattern. The church is symmetrical. Friends, it looks like you and I. We have one head and one body, and so does the church. So that is a simple uh, aid to help you as well as the prospect go through this very simple understanding. And that will take us to our next passage, John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. And I'm going to pause here, and, and we're going to read through this very carefully. And it's important that the prospect understands this as well. In chapter 17 of the book of John, we have a record of Jesus' prayer. Verse 1 tells us that, that, that these words spake Jesus, and He lifted up His eyes and said, uh, Father, the hour is come, glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son may, all, may glorify Thee. So this is Jesus' prayer right before His crucifixion. And in we, as we arrive at verse 20, Jesus speaking here, He prayed for His disciples. He also prayed for the apostles and their guidance in the, in the truth that was, was to come in the days following. And as we arrive at verse 20, Jesus speaking, Neither pray for, I, for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their word. That's you and I. That they may all be one. As thou, Father, art in Me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that Thou hast sent me. Verse 22, And the glory which Thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I've highlighted in that passage of Scripture, our Master uses the word one four times. The point is clear. He wants us to be one religiously. But we see that so differently throughout denominationalism. This seems to be a secret in the religious world that a religious group or body be one. But Jesus said that's how God wants it. That's how He wants it. That's how He wants His church to be, to be one in the truth. So our question reads, did Jesus pray that His followers all be one? And that's, of course, yes, absolutely. And that takes us to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, and reads as follows. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. And we'll answer the question, is religious division condemned? Yes, according to that passage of Paul's writing to the Corinth, church at Corinth. Since religious division is condemned, and since Jesus prayed that all of His followers be one, must we strive to be one religiously? Yes, 
we see here that Jesus demands unity. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, it reads, And He is head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. And our question reads, Since Jesus is head of the church, the body, should we go to anyone other than Jesus and the inspired writers of the New Testament to learn, number one, organization, number two, worship, and number three, the name of the church. Should we go to anyone other than that? And of course, the answer would be no, absolutely not. And this is the layout or the, or the, the framework of lesson two, of course. And that gets us, once we have learned that fundamental principle, that takes us to the organization of the church. So we've learned there's only one church, but how is it to be organized? In Matthew chapter 15, verse 13, But he answered and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. And our question reads, If a church is not built in accordance with the Word of God, will it be rooted up? Yes. And it's important to note here that Jesus is not trying to give anyone a gardening lesson or try to learn how to grow a crop. Jesus is using a very real everyday practice of, of growing crops to stress this point. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And we might note that this is Paul and Barnabas. So our question reads, Did these inspired men ordain elders in every church? Yes. And by the way, we may ask the prospect this. Does organization matter in a family? A family is consisted of a father and a mother and children. Or does, or, does organization exist in a company? You have a CEO and you have supervisors and project managers and employees and clerks and secretaries. Of course, organization matters. And so does too for the church. Our next question, are we right if we do as they do, as they did, in ordaining a plurality of elders in every congregation? Yes. That's what God said. Our next question, could we be wrong if we did not organize the church the way those inspired men of God did? Is it wrong? Could it be wrong? Yes. And you may notice here, I've got some words here out from this question. It's curiosity, confusion, and conflict. Friends, these are the stages that the prospect will go through during the study. They may be troubling and they may seem difficult, but if they don't reach conflict, there will not be uh, a conversion. Curiosity likely takes place with this question here. Could we be wrong? It may, not, it may be entirely possible for a prospect to say, well, that may just be how they did it, but there may be a different way to do it. But we would have to see that from this passage, we'll never improve on what God said. This is His pattern. 
So curiosity likely goes, begins at this, at this passage. And they may say, well, that's curious. That's a curious looking church in the New Testament. And of course, confusion, as we're going to see here in a moment, comes later in Lesson 2. And of course, conflict comes in Lesson 3. And we'll cover that when we get there in due time. Our next passage, Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And verse 28 reads, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And our question reads, Are the elders to be the overseers of the church? Yes. And it's an important note to make here that if we don't do what they did, we will not be who they were. You may want to write that down. The very important note, if we don't do what they did, we won't be who they were. And we know what they did is right because they were inspired. And I know each and every one of us in here wants to be who those early first century Christians were. And our next passage of Scripture takes us to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting or lacking, and ordain elders in every city. As I had appointed thee, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. And our question reads, When Paul told Titus to set things in order, did he tell him to ordain elders? Yes. When we do what Titus did in organizing the church, are we doing the will of God? Of course we are. Do the term elder, bishop, and overseer refer to the same office? Yes, they do. We notice that in this passage. And we may have to use the example of, the, of having a title with different names. Maybe a father. A man wears the name of a father and a husband. And that would be a very simple illustration to use if the prospect has a question on that. And our next passage takes us to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It's a lengthy passage. This is a true saying. If a man desireth an office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop must, must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, amped to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into repro reproach and the snare of the devil. And our question reads about the organization for elders. Must an elder be married? Yes. Must an elder have children? Yes. 
may a recent convert or a novice serve as an elder? Absolutely not. So not we learn here that not everybody can be an elder. So depending on what denominational background the prospect comes from that one may be studying with, they may be called an elder in that specific denomination and they're 20 years old and they're not married and then they're going to be one it's going to be running through their mind well how can I be an elder when uh, I'm not even married and we have women female females that are congregation that are called wear the name elder and how can they wear that office if they're not if they can't be meet the marriage requirement and then this is where they may go from curiosity to confusion. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Likewise must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. And our question reads, what church official is under discussion here? And that would, of course, be the deacons. Is it God's plan that there be qualified elders and deacons in every church? Yes. And we have an example of that, of how God would want that to look in Philippians chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul and, Tim, Paul, and that reads, Paul and Timothy, and we may put a note in there that those were the preachers of the congregation, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ, those are the Christians, in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Of course, those are the elders and deacons. We have a fully organized church in Scripture. So the church at Philippi was organized with bishops and deacons. This is what it looked like in the first century, my friend, and this is what we have to organize it today to please the God of heaven. And now we come to our next point. Now that we have established the organization, or the, what the church is and the organization, we come to the worship. John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And our question reads, must we worship God in spirit and in truth? Yes. John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Question, what is truth? Thy word. We established that in lesson one. Since we must worship God in truth, must we worship as God has directed in the Bible? And of course, that would be an overwhelming yes. Matthew chapter 15 verse 9 reads, But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And our question, is it possible to worship God in vain? Now, the prospect may not know what the word vain here means. So, if we could write in the word worthless or empty, both mean the same thing in a translation of that word. Is it possible to worship God in vain? According to that passage, yes. 
And our next question from that passage, If we worship God according to the commandments of uninspired men, will God accept it? Of course not. In Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, we have another act of worship. And He took bread and gave thanks, this is of course Jesus, and break it and gave unto them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, this do in remembrance of me. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood which is shed for you. And our question reads, Did Jesus command His disciples to partake of the Lord's Supper? Yes. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, we learn the significance of those two emblems. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it, is it not the communion of the, of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the cup is a communion of the blank of Christ, that's of course the blood, and the bread is a communion of the blank of Christ, and that of course is the body. Those two emblems that we use in the Lord's Supper, in communion, is the blood and body of Christ. It's what it represents. So now we learn how to often to partake that. In Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to part on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. And our question, before I go to that question, we may establish this. Many people neglect this in the religious world today. And it's very likely that the prospect that you will be studying with will not know this truth too on how often to partake of it. This is also another point when the curiosity goes into confusion. They're confused at why their denomination does not partake of it. Maybe they partake of it quarterly or once a month or at Christmas and Easter or maybe even once a year or maybe even once in a lifetime. But it's important that we use this Old Testament principle to learn the significance of Acts chapter 20, verse 7. When God told the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, to remember the Sabbath, did He mean for them to keep every Sabbath? When Brother Bobby Bates written this, he was brilliant when he did this example. And of course the answer would be yes. So taking that example to our first day of the week example, when those Christians met upon the first day of the week to eat the Lord's Supper, did they do it on the first day of each week? And of course that would be yes. And our next question, should Christians today eat the Lord's Supper upon the first day of the week? Yes. It's that simple. And we want to know how, they, how, did, how did they do it and the significance of, of that memorial. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we are told, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, and fellowship, and in breaking of bread, and in, in prayers. The disciples continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
And we may ask the prospect to make this note of Acts chapter 2, verse 42. What day was this on? And of course, that would be the day of Pentecost. That was a Sunday, the first day of the week. It was our worship Sunday, just as they did, just as we do today. And our last question for this particular act of worship, will we be pleasing to God if we continue steadfastly in these things? Yes, absolutely. And we learn one more on our next page in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Again, Paul speaking here. As I have given order to the churches of, Gal of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Is it God's will that we give as, we, as if we have been prospered? Yes. And before we go to the last point, we may want to ask the prospect this question. Have you ever been to a church who did not take up the collection every Sunday? You know, some denominations may make the note, well, if we take of the Lord's Supper every week, it won't mean as much. But friends, we can all understand that every denomination understands the passage about giving, but they can't understand it about the Lord's Supper. How sad is that? They always want money. But when it comes to remembering the blood and body of Christ, it doesn't mean as much. It won't be significant as if we do it every, every week. Friends, we know that's nonsense. Are we to make a contribution on the same day we are to partake of the Lord's Supper? Absolutely yes. Now, arriving at Ephesians 5, 19, we're going to learn another aspect of worship. Now, you may be concerned about going into this, this particular act of worship, but this will be very simple for us to get through and for you to get through with a prospect. But before we go into the Scripture, I would, I would ask the prospect, I would make a statement like this. You're probably going to have questions about the music of worship. But if you'll hold your questions, give us about 10 minutes to go through some of these things, every question that you can possibly ask will be answered. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. And our question reads, Are we to sing? Yes. Does this passage mention mechanical instruments of music? No. And as a side note and a record from history, Church historians tell us that the followers of Christ did not use mechanical instruments of music in their worship for hundreds of years after Christ. The Greek Orthodox Church, which broke off from the Roman Catholic Church, has never used instrumental music in their worship. When you attend the worship of the Church of Christ, you will notice we do not use instrumental music in our worship. The following comparisons will help illustrate the reason. So when we keep in mind, again, 
we may need to guide them back to book one. Remember, book one was authority. Authority is key here for understanding the instruments of music, absence in worship, and being acceptable to God. In these next few charts, Brother Rob has 13 charts in the Personally Evangelism Workbook. I've got six of them stated here tonight for our consideration. The first one here is called the Law of Exclusion. And one may say, what is that? But friends, we use this every day and we don't know it. So the Law of Exclusion states, that which is specifically stated excludes all others. The law is not a book of don'ts. If it were, we would need a truck to carry it around. The law is a book of do's. What the law says do excludes all others. And for example, you're caught speeding. Officer, the law did not say not to drive 85 miles an hour. It's posted 85 miles an hour, but it did not say, or it's posted at 65, and it did not say to drive 85. When the law states 65, of course, that excludes all other speeds. And this one is uh, given in uh, the book two. It's given in greater detail here. Let's go ahead and look at our next question of Genesis chapter 4, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 14. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shalt thou make it, make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. Notice what God's command said. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. And our question from that... Would Noah have sinned if he had built the ark of metal or mud? And the answer would be yes. Would Noah have sinned if he had built the ark of any other wood? The answer would be yes. This is also the principle of biblical silence as well as the law of exclusion. And this helps us understand the principles here of this particular act of worship. And looking under the, the picture there of the ark, we see the vocal versus instrumental. When God said go for wood, that automatically eliminated any other kind of wood. When God said sing, that automatically eliminated any other kind of music. So, but one may suppose, well, God, when, or Noah talking to God, what if Noah would have wanted to use cedar or pine? You know, cedar and pine, they have a nice smell. That would have made the ark smell good. Could he have used it? Well, he could have, but he would have sinned because God's specific instructions were that under the law of exclusion. What God said excluded all others. In Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we learn another principle. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And our question reads, Did Nadab and Abihu sin when they offered a different kind of fire than God commanded? Yes. Did God punish them? Yes. 
And is it important to worship God the way He has commanded without alteration? And the answer, of course, would be yes. I believe I had one more. I did not. Okay. So that takes us to our next passage of Scripture. And that comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 29. We're going to use the example of the Lord's Supper once again. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Would it be a sin to put jam on the bread to improve the taste? Yes. Would it be a sin to add vitamin tonic to the fruit of the vine to aid our enthusiasm in serving God? Absolutely. One may argue, well, no one, might, no one would fall asleep if we add that to the, the fruit of the vine in, in worship. And that would aid us and help us in serving God, but it would be a sin and everybody would know it, know, know it because what Jesus said. Jesus took the unleavened bread and fruit of the vine. And again, what he stated excludes everything else. Would it be a sin to add hamburgers and milkshakes to the Lord's Supper? Absolutely. One may argue, well, we'll fill the building if we offer lunch combined with the Lord's Supper. But again, that would be a sin, and we all know that very clear. Would Noah have sinned if he had used oak and gopher wood in the ark? He may have used gopher wood and added oak. Of course, he would have sinned. Did God approve of Nadab and Abihu offering a different kind of fire than he had commanded? No, he did not. And I did have the other charts right here. And before we answer that last question. Let's look at these other charts of instrumental music. Some may indicate that, but they're sincere in what they do. But let's look at what sincerity is. Suppose a sincere doctor was to operate on you without medical school or without the knowledge of, of surgery, of performing a surgery. Sincerity is a needed quality, but sincerity alone is not sufficient in any area. Is, is sincerity alone sufficient in law, medicine, math, education, or religion? Absolutely not. Suppose you're a math teacher and a student in your class walks up and he insisted that 2 plus 2 equals 5. But you can't change that just because the student wants you to. He's sincere in what he's wanting. But you can't change it because 2 plus 2 is not 5. It's already been stated. But, so we cannot alter the worship because we do not have the authority to do so. And our last chart for this particular act of worship for singing, some like to go back to the Old Testament and make the statement, 
but uh, they offer they used instruments of music and worship in the Old Testament. Notice this with me. When a person goes to the Old Testament, he admits two things. Number one, I need authority for what I do. And number two, it's not in the New Testament. And as we learned in Lesson 1 and established that point, we are not under the Old Testament law. Of course, we're told that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 12. If we were, why don't we stone the rebellious and sacrifice animals? And of course, that's taken from Exodus through Deuteronomy. If one's going to take a principle from the Old Testament, then they have to take all of it, all of the commandments in the Old Testament. And it's very important that we close this last part with this note, and you may want to write this down, that feelings, what I feel in my heart, are not indicators for the truth. Again, we can't alter the worship because we don't have the authority to do so. And again, based on the law of exclusion, what God has said. And that takes us to our last point tonight in the name of the church. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, And I say unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We have established that already. But this is going to be the premise for understanding the name of the church. Who built the church? That's Jesus. Jesus said He was going to build whose church? And of course, that's His. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Ghost had made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. So who purchased the church? That's Jesus. Whose name should be on the deed? And that's of course Jesus. It's His. He paid the highest price of anything on this earth. And His name must be on the deed. We have to wear His name. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of, I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am, I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? So we see here that that first century church at Corinth was following, denominating themselves among men. Is it a sin to name the church after Paul, Apollos, Cephas, or any other human being? Absolutely. If the church were named after Paul, who would we be glorifying? And that, of course, would be, would be Paul. Friends, we don't call ourselves anything after men or what they've established. Or let's suppose that the church were named after a religious act such as repentance. What would we be glorifying? Of course, we would be glorifying repentance. If it were a sin to name the church the Pauline church, would it be a sin to name it the Lutheran Church after Martin Luther? Of course it would be. You may make note that Martin Luther of the, uh, 
of the movement that he started, the, restor uh, the Reformation movement of the Catholic Church, he begged his followers not to call him that. But years later, they eventually did. And I suppose it would be more of a sin to call one's denomination after a denomination of an uninspired men than it would even be of Paul. So if it were a sin to name it the Repentance Church, would it be a sin to name it the Baptist Church? And of course that would be an overwhelming yes. And can you think of any other unauthorized religious names today that are used? And I can think of a lot. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Are we to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? Yes. Would this include the name by which we refer to God's people? Absolutely. And in Romans chapter 16, verse 16, Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. The churches of Christ salute you. Do you read of the church of Christ in the Bible? Absolutely we do. Would it be wrong to call the church by this name? Of course not. Would this name glorify the one who built the church and bought it with his own blood? Yes. And we may make note that the church of Christ is, as we've heard it before, it's not a name, but rather it's a designation to, to God's people, to His children, those that have been covered in the blood of the Lamb. And our last passage for the night, and our last two questions, comes from Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5. Moses under example, who ser under discussion, who served unto us the example and shadow of heavenly things, as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern shown to thee in the mount. And our question. Was Moses warned to build the tabernacle after God's pattern? Yes. Must we be careful to build the church after God's pattern in the New Testament? Absolutely. And lastly tonight, a slide of conclusion. Are you a member of the church that we've talked about tonight? A faithful member? If you are, thanks be to God to that. You have been obeyed the gospel. You've been washed in His blood and added to that body. But if you've not, you can do that tonight. You can come down this aisle. You can go through those steps of hearing Romans 10, 17, believing that Jesus is who He is, Mark 16, 15, repenting of those things in your life, Luke 13, 3, Confessing His name audibly as the Son of God, Romans 10, 9, and being buried in baptism with Him, Acts 2, 38, Romans chapter 6, 3, and 4. And if you remain faithful until death, Revelation 2, 10 says, you'll have a home in heaven forever. But if you have fallen away, dear friend, we need you in the army of God. God needs you for this work of evangelism. If you've fallen away tonight, we'll pray for you. And God's promise to forgive, 1 John chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. If we can help you tonight, won't you come?
while together we stand and sing the invitation song. <laughs>